Hopefully you have a Bible with you. If you do, please turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 4, and our fifth and final sermon uh, in this chapter is the plan for this morning. Daniel, chapter 4, and this morning we're going to look at verses 34 to 37. If you're new to us here at Grace, thank you so much for being here this morning. Perhaps you came this morning and you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You should find one for you underneath the chairs, somewhere along in your aisle. And in that particular uh, copy of the Bible, it's on page 694, page 694, Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. As noted in our illustration to the children, we spend a lot of our lives trying to climb the ladder, climb the stool, I guess we could say, to extend the analogy. We want to be on top. It's like the game King of the Mountain or King of the Hill that we played as children. We're still playing it as adults. We want to have the most stuff, the best stuff. We want to be the best. We want to be in control. We want the power. We want the fame. We want the pleasure. We want all of these things for ourselves. And the only thing that right-sizes us and our hearts is God himself. And the best thing for us is for him to occupy the throne and not us. Because of who God is, he is outward-looking, he is others-oriented, he is a life-giver, he creates life and he sustains life and he gives and he loves and he is gracious and merciful and good and gentle and kind and holy and righteous and all these things and so much more. And yet we spend so much of our time, even this season, and we know that I noted the irony of Black Friday a few sermons ago, how at least our neighbors to the south can spend an entire day thanking God for all the stuff they have and then the entirety of the next day getting more stuff at cheaper prices. But we do a similar thing up here in Canada, and we also do that around this time. We can make this time more about the stuff and the traditions and the things, the presents, than we do about the one that we're supposed to be uh, celebrating. I remember we had an open house for a summer intern And uh, now the summer intern, in fairness, was fairly introverted, but uh, we had a lot of people over to the house and the backyard and different things, and the party was going strong, and everybody was hanging out in the kitchen, and lots of laughter and conversations, and I just happened to walk into our living room, and there was the summer intern sitting on the couch in our living room by himself in an empty room. And somehow, the person that we were there (laughs) to say thank you for was almost forgotten in the midst of all of the celebration. And sometimes we can do the same. And so we end off this chapter then here in Nabonidus, Nebuchadnezzar, who started this chapter where the chapter ends, is now going to end the chapter with that same sentiment to let us know that he now, finally, seems to have been right-sized in his own mind. This individual that helped extend the city of Babylon and built the hanging gardens for his median wife and who did many great things and built on the foundation of the military victories uh, of those before him, has a heart that is lifted up and wants to bring glory to himself, focus on himself. 
And yet God needs to step in and remind him that there is a God, but it's not him. A reminder that we need consistently. And so Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, follow along with, with me if you would as I read it this morning. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. As mentioned, we continue seemingly even after salvation, if we are true children of God here this morning, to struggle with God actually being in control, especially, obviously, when life does not go our way, when things do not work out the way we want them to, when we feel that we could do a better job of running the universe or certainly a better job of running our life than God can. We have better ideas. We have more intellectually stimulating solutions. We know best, we think, in our heart of hearts. And God continually needs to remind us that there is a God, but that it's not us. And so this Nabonizus, Nebuchadnezzar, who is a very proud man, a very proud ruler, is humbled, as we saw last Sunday, and now he exalts the king of heaven. And so our sermon for this morning is exalted, and we see in the first place that only God can exalt anyone. We saw last week that only God can humble anyone. Only God can change the human heart. And that is why we need to pray, and pray much. It is not the eloquence of our speech it is not the coherence of our argumentation that will bring anybody to change their mind and their heart from self-worship to the worship of God. Only God can humble anyone, and he does so in fairly dramatic fashion to Nebuchadnezzar. But conversely, then, only God can exalt anyone. And this is part of the story of Nabonidus. And so we see in the first place that God controls the future. Right under the gate it says, at the end of the days. God came to Nabonidus and gave him a vision. He's under no obligation to do so. God is not under any obligation to let us know what is coming in the future. And I think most of the time we think we would like that, but I think more often than not we would rather not know the future. However, God in his grace and mercy lets Nabonidus know what is coming, what is going to happen. Yes, you have been granted much power and authority, so much so that the nations of the world gather under your protection and your guidance and your care. But your tree is going to be felled and all that's left is going to be a stump. Now, there is life there, but you are going to be humbled for a period of time. 
And the nature of this humbling is so grotesque that Daniel, who is interpreting the vision, says to Nebuchadnezzar, departing from his normal interpretation of dreams speech to say, please, please change your ways. And not only does God give him advance notice of what is going to happen, he gives him a full calendar year to repent. Nebuchadnezzar does not do so. And so God brings about what he promised. And it's a recognition here that Nebuchadnezzar has that at the end of the days, end of what days? At the end of the days prophesied to me by God himself. It is implied even in this statement that Nebuchadnezzar is giving assent to the fact that God is in control. But at the end of my days, if I had to choose after five minutes of losing my mind and believing myself to be an animal, I would have changed it. That would be the end of that particular day. It wouldn't have lasted a full day. But seven times pass over Nebuchadnezzar, we believe seven years, that is a long time to not be in control of your mental faculties. God is the one who is in control of the future. God also controls the present. Notice he says, my reason returned to me, and in verse 36, at the same time my reason returned to me. Twice he lets us know this, and this again is praise to God to say, this is of God. God took my reason from me, my human ability to process information, to be self-aware, to have all of the things that are normal expressions of the image of God, those things are removed. I, I had no sense of myself. I became like a beast, literally, like an animal. I did not have reasonable faculties. They were gone from me by God's hand. God gave that back to me. God did that, Nebuchadnezzar says. Nebuchadnezzar was not grazing out in the field one day and decided to start, sort of postulate about, uh, you know, advanced calculus. He lost his mental faculties because God took them from him and only God could give them back. And he recognizes that here. My reason returned to me. This wasn't something that he learned. All right, I'm back to square one. I have a few years now, maybe seven, to sort of learn the alphabet and try to get back to where I was before. No. He had reason, it was taken from him, God gave it back, and God did all of that. And Nebuchadnezzar lets us know that. All of this is God's, under God's control. But God alone then, in the, in the third place, is exalted. Notice he lifted his eyes to heaven. There is a spatial part of this. When we are proud, we see in only two directions, sideways and down. We look around and we compare ourselves with ourselves to see how we're doing, and then we look down on others. They become, in our estimation, less than they actually are. And what changes, the only thing that can change is that God will help us to look up, to see him in all of his glory, and that drastically reduces our estimation of our own majesty and glory and right-sizes who we actually are. God alone can exalt anyone. God alone is exalted. I bless the Most High, he says at the end of verse 34. Praised and honored him. And in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. He alone is to be exalted. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone is to receive praise and honor and glory. 
Nebuchadnezzar was quite okay with people giving him praise and honor and glory. Dressed in his royal robes, in his royal palace. Yes, please, please, tell me more. But now there is a change. Now Nebuchadnezzar says, I praise and extol and honor and praise and bless the king of heaven. He is the one that receives all praise and honor and glory. You notice in the New Testament the reaction of Paul and Barnabas when individuals believe themselves, them to be Roman gods, deities, and they, they begin to worship them. And as soon as Paul finds that out, he runs out, no, no, we are not deities. Do not worship us. We're just men like you. There's a strong, visceral response that Paul has to any thought of anybody giving him any honor and glory. And that ought to be the same with us. God alone is exalted, and Nebuchadnezzar now realizes this. But God alone exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. Notice after the, his reason returns to him in verse 36, for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord, sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. For all his works are right, it says, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. I think there's two things here. In the first place, at the end of verse 36, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has returned to him what he lost. How gracious God is. If a politician or anybody in a position of leadership or authority literally lost their mind, how long do you think it would take in our culture to replace them? Less than that same day? Even in the news cycle, things that are in the news today are gone by the next day because there's something else. Nebuchadnezzar realizes the grace and mercy of God. There is no earthly reason why anybody should have stuck around for his kingship to be returned. How embarrassing would that be if you were instructed to sort of hide Nabonidus in his current shape. Hey, I traveled here from a distant land. I'd like to meet your uh, ruler. I've heard lots about this Nebuchadnezzar guy. Can I see him? Uh, he's out right now. He's been out for quite some time. <laughs> Literally out, like out back in the lawn. Don't look. There's no, there's no earthly reason why he should have gotten any of that back. And how do you serve again under somebody that you watched graze on the back 40? How would you have respect for someone who literally their hair just grows matted and lengthy like eagle's feathers and their nails uncut grow like talons? How do you see somebody in that shape, in that position and return to a place where you honor them as king. Only God can do that. Only God exalts anyone. And as we know, God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. You ever met anybody that tells you how amazing they are? Like within the first couple times of meeting them? Or conversely, tells everybody around them how much an idiot everybody else is? I didn't realize this before getting into construction, but I was working construction before getting into the ministry. I realized this is sort of common on job sites, that the next trade in says that the trade that was there before are a bunch of morons, because then whatever they do, well, it's not my fault, right? 
So the guys that poured the footings must have been completely drunk because these are all out of whack. And then the guys that are framing, they must have been nuts. So it just sort of, whether it's an advancement of me or a diminishing of others, whatever it might be, this is the heart posture of anyone who does not have Christ ruling and reigning in their heart and life. Nabonidus is blessed by God and he is grateful for it. But then notice, and that is key here in verse 37, here is how you know that somebody truly is repentant for their sin. When they thank God for humbling them. We've all known people and we've all been those people who God has humbled or attempted to humble. And what is our typical response to that? We get angry. We get mad. God, how could you? Why me? I can't believe this would happen. God, this is your fault. And we rage, Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage, the nations rage against God? We are not grateful when God reveals us to be less than we think we are. Unless we have his heart in mind, unless he's transforming us by the good news that although we are great sinners, there's a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what makes the difference? How is the difference seen? Nebuchadnezzar is actually grateful for the losing of his mind for seven years. Now let me put that to us. If that happened to us, seven years of our life gone, for all intents and purposes, missing. We have no memory. We didn't get anything done that we wanted to accomplish. Nothing was advanced. And worse than that, we were humiliated, or certainly humbled as we were in last week, by God. How do we come out of that? Do we come out of that angry and frustrated? Or do we come out of that humble and grateful? You know that Nebuchadnezzar's repentance has some weight to it, some genuineness to it, because he is actually thankful for how God humbled him. Now, he's not a masochist. He's not thankful for the process or for the event itself, perhaps, but he's thankful for the, the end of that. He's thankful for the result of that. And he says all of God's ways are just and right. He had every right to turn me out to pasture. And he had every right to leave me there. But thanks be to God that he brought me back. All of his grace. And so we key in on his prayer, his song, we might say, in verses 34 and 35 for our second point this morning, that God alone is exalted. God alone is exalted. First of all, God always is. He lives forever and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Long before we were, God is. I think many in our current culture believe that history started the day they were born. We always need good theologians, but man, do we ever need good historians. History did not begin with your birth. Life is not about you. It's about God. It's about him and his glory. He long predates you. He has always been. He has no beginning. God never celebrates a birthday. 
He is forever. And he always will be. One of his names is I Am. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that in similar fashion to a previous Nebuchadnezzar who had said or had been said to him, and after you, these things will happen. History also does not end with your death. It goes on. God always is. God alone ultimately rules over all. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Above every national kingdom, above every earthly king, is another king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. He ultimately is ruling, as we said last week. It is not just that he will rule, he currently rules. Anyone with any position of authority exercises that authority in a deferred fashion. And if they are wise, they will exercise it in a way that God would exercise it as a reflection of his character. Because the authority comes from him. God alone ultimately rules over all. God alone is to be worshipped. Notice verse 35a, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Really, Nebuchadnezzar? Have you constructed the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? Extended the walls of the city? All the things that you did? Yes. Compared to God, that's nothing. What does Paul even say? Compared to Jesus, my degrees, my pedigree, my family name, my heritage, all of my accomplishments, all the books that I wrote, all the things that I did, all of that, he says, counts as nothing. Because the glory of Jesus far surpasses all of it. And then this is probably the one we struggle with the most. God alone is free. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Or say to him after the fact, what have you done? God is beholden to no one and does not answer to anyone else. God is not loving because there is an external standard of love to which he must adhere. Whatever God does is loving by definition because God is love. God does as he wills among both the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, even in the hearts and souls of men created in his image. God alone does what he wills. And beforehand, nobody can stop him, and afterwards, nobody can question him. This Nebuchadnezzar has come to. And this previously pagan king seems to have a better sense of who God is than many Christians. God alone is free. But what does he do with that freedom? If you were God, how long would any, would any of your enemies last? If you were given the power of God, how long would any of us last or make it? At the core of God, who God is, yes, he is holy. One of his, the only attribute that is repeated three times, but he is love and goodness and kindness and gentleness and grace and mercy and righteousness and all of this and so much more. What does he do with his freedom? 
In order to bring us into relationship with himself, he comes down to us. He is under no obligation to do so, but who he is, he is a life giver, he is a creator God, he is outward focused and others oriented. What does he do? He wants to share who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally loving one another, sharing glory with each other. He wants us in on that, and so he creates us in the first place in his image to enjoy him. How enjoyable life would be. It would actually be utopian bliss without sin. With God on the throne and everyone acting like him. And yet, what did we do? We wanted to push him off of the throne, off of the stool, and we wanted to ascend and take over and do things our way. And that has led to disaster from the beginning all the way down to our current day. Full of wars and disasters and accidents and tragedy and fatalities and all of this and so much more. We messed up. So what did God do? Did he wash his hands of us and leave? No. He came down and became one of us. That's why we're celebrating. That's why this is a big deal. That's why all of the ornamentation and the decorations and all of the things, it's a big deal that there's hope that God came down to us, that Jesus Christ became one of us. And he did that so that his righteous life could become ours and the penalty for our sin could become his. That's why he came. He came to go to the cross. To bear humanity's sin on his own, on his shoulders, so that we could be free. We are loved and forgiven and free in Christ. And it's something that we need to proclaim from the rooftops. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of, even as we saw in the video this morning, children on the streets of Chad fighting with one another just over basic necessities around the world, global poverty and hunger and sex trafficking and all of these things and close to home, car accidents and all of this. In the midst of all of this, there actually is love. There actually is peace. There actually is joy. There actually is hope. And his name is Jesus. That's why he came. And one day, he will make all things new. And none of these things will exist anymore. But we'll be in his presence. We sang that the last song before I get up to preach. And we're moving into the book of Revelation after Daniel. That's what we're going to see. What, what is coming at the end and the consummation. All of the things the human heart longs for will be reality. But only if we repent of our sinfulness. Recognize that we are not God. And in humility and gratitude, ask him for forgiveness. Submitting to him, not only as Savior, but also as Lord. He alone is exalted. And that is the response that we have this morning. Is Jesus both our Lord as well as our Savior? We, we seem to always have a twisted way of making things about us, don't we? We love the idea of Jesus as Savior. Because that puts us to the forefront. Yes, he saved me. And what a good deal he got. Yes, he is our Savior and our friend, but he's also our Lord, even as Arthur prayed. He is both the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb who bled for our sins. And so, this Christmas season and beyond, is it him that we serve? 
do we echo these words of Nebuchadnezzar, not just in our speech, but in how we live our life? Truly is our life lived at his command, and is it lived for his glory? My prayer is that that is true of all of us this morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as the music team returns. Father, thank you this morning once again for your word. And what an incredible outburst of praise from this once pagan king. This individual living in darkness who gave no thought at all to you and to your glory. Now humbled, and I believe redeemed, to understand that there is a God, but it is you and not us. Father, in our consistent daily struggle to replace you with us, Father, I pray that you would continually remind us the preaching of your word and the teaching of your word and the praying of your word and the reading of your word and the singing of your word. That you are God alone and not us. May we exalt your name and not just here in church on Sundays, but throughout our week and throughout our lives. May all that we do be to your honor and to your glory. As the Moravians used to say, Father, may we serve you, die, and be forgotten. It's not about us. It never was. Help us, Father, to exalt you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.